Hi, I'm Rick Steves. While airline routes and the internet seem to be making it a smaller and smaller world all the time, you can still get way, way off the beaten path. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll see how. My friend Don George has been traveling to exotic locales in the developing world for most of his life. Don joins us in a moment to help field your emails about visiting some of the less obvious places on our planet, where you can experience everything from tropical hedonism to gaining empathy with an indigenous culture. Later in the hour, we'll check in with two Lonely Planet authors and consider some exotic options for adventure in the Southern Hemisphere. Gary Chandler takes us up the Amazon. Let the river and the experience be what it is, and if you see animals, that's terrific. Then, Errol Hunt introduces us to the native Maori culture in New Zealand. Definitely, there's a lot of support for Maori culture and making sure that it's alive and vibrant. It's full steam ahead as we get off the beaten path on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're considering our options for travel off the beaten track. We're exploring the Amazon River, and we're checking out the Polynesian Maori culture in New Zealand. First, let's catch up on some of the emails we've received on the topic of travel to some of the world's more exotic and challenging destinations. Joining us is one of my favorite experts on travel to the far corners of the earth, Don George. Don has a new blog and a website at geox.travel. That's G-E-O-E-X dot travel. And Don joins us for a few minutes right now to explore some options for getting out into the world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today I'm joined by Don George. And Don is the global travel editor for Lonely Planet, which uh, produces guidebooks covering the entire planet. Thanks for being with us, Don. It's great to be here, Rick. We've got some emails, and if you want to join in the conversation, you can always email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And uh, let's just get right into these emails. Scott and Terry from Colorado Springs say that we know all about the B&Bs in Europe, but do all countries have the equivalent? And if so, which ones are the best, and, and how should I find them? So we know in, in Europe we've got Husrum in Norway and Chamberdote in France and Zimmers in Germany. It's a great opportunity to enjoy double the cultural intimacy for half the price by staying in people's homes. What do we have outside of Europe, Don, in the way of opportunities to stay in people's homes rather than hotels? There are absolutely versions of B&Bs in just about every country on the planet. I'll just take one example. In Japan, there's something called the Minchuku, which is very much like a, a B&B where you're staying in someone's home. Uh, you usually have breakfast with the family, and you get all of the delights of having a local guide to the community. It's it's a wonderful way to travel. And every country I've been to in Asia has some version of B&Bs. Um, we do talk about it in our guidebooks. You can also get information from the tourism boards for the different countries. And I highly recommend this as a terrific way to save money, but more importantly, make local connections. So in Japan, I've heard of the Ryokans, which to me are sort of over-the-top B&Bs. How, how's right. a Minshuku different than a Ryokan? It's a much simpler setting. A Ryokan is specifically designed as a rather spectacularly lavish inn. Its only purpose is to serve travelers. A Minshuku is actually a house that's been converted. It has a room where people can stay who are passing through. Okay, so that's really a simple alternative to a hotel for people who are on a tight budget. Yes, exactly. What would a Minshuku cost ballpark uh, these days? Oh, $100. For a double. For a double. Does that include that breakfast? That includes breakfast. All right. Yeah. But Japan's a very expensive country. If you go to a poor country, Losman, those are popular in, uh, where's that, Thailand? Losman are popular in Thailand, right. Right. So uh, that would be an example of a humble uh, guest house or B&B. Right. And that might cost you, depending on the setting, $25, 30 $40. All over the world, we find mom-and-pop outfits that are just uh, scrambling little entrepreneurs trying to make a, a buck off the tourists, and the backpackers enjoy that. I think mm -hmm. uh, when you go to the wealthy nations these days, you're paying $100 for a double, but it's not unusual to find a, a reasonable safe room for 20 bucks in the developing world. That's right, and I'm thinking now, actually, of, of Greece, because when you take a ferry and it pulls into a port in Greece, there's all the women in black waiting for the ferry to arrive, and they all are trying to sell you a room in their house. And there's an equivalent of that in many 
many countries around the world. The people will meet you and say, no, come with me, come with me. And you kind of figure out which one you get a good vibration from and you go with them and you look at what they have to offer. And if you don't like it, you go back to the wharf and go with somebody else. But this is a great way to find a wonderful room and also meet a new friend. I love that. When a boat comes into any Greek island, there's the people that are selling rooms and they wait. And the police actually have like a starting block right. and they keep That's them right. back. <laughs> and the, they wait until the ferry opens its, its gate. And then the police raise their starting block and it's like... Like a, a stampede. Yeah. And all of these local hustlers basically come at the tourists and the backpackers and they've got little scrapbooks. And they'll, <laughs> and they'll get you in the shirt. Look at this beautiful place. Right. And what you got to be very careful of is they'll say it's local. And they say, just get in, my, mm. in the back of my pickup. And they take you way out into the Thules. Right. And if they say it's local and if you want a local place like where you can walk to the town and they take you out in the middle of nowhere, you better be very assertive to say, forget it. I need to go back downtown, I think. Absolutely. And being assertive is important. It's a good rule for all aspects of the traveler's life, but certainly in a case like this, you just say to the person, no, I don't want to be here. Take me back to town. I tested it once. I flew into Santorini at midnight. I had no idea where I'd stay, flying into this tiny little airport. And sure enough, I got off the airplane, and there was six or eight people right there with their pickups, with their little scrapbooks, and <laughs> I had a great place to stay, even arriving at midnight. Another email, Gene in Madison, Wisconsin, asks... When in remote places, sometimes I wish I had more information. What are the best sources when actually overseas to get practical information on where I am? Because obviously you want to buy your guidebook before you leave home. Let's say you get somewhere and it's really far away. What do you do if you needed more information? Well, in many places there will be a local tourist office of one kind or another, and that will have information for you. These days, in very remote places, there's also Internet cafes. I'm always astonished at how... You think you're in the middle of nowhere, and there pops up a little internet cafe, and there's a lot of information available on the internet, of course. And yeah. then you can also get information from locals. You can wander into a store, or if there is a hotel, of course, you can wander into a hotel and get good information from local people. They'll know what's happening on the ground. So those are all sources of information. You know, it's a very interesting thing. I always wondered, it's such a poor country. Will they have internet cafes? Actually, the more poor the country is, the more likely they will have internet cafes because if it's a developing country, people won't likely be online at home. But their kids are sure going to want to get online occasionally, and they're down at the corner where the travelers are. So you can get online almost everywhere. The uh, idea about the tourist office, it's just important to remember that tourist offices are very susceptible to corruption and payola. A lot of times, the real information isn't available at the tourist office. They're pushing places that and, and companies that will give them a kickback. I remember in my travels through Asia especially, different English-speaking markets had access to different information. And if I'm on a bus for four hours going through India, I'll get to know what other uh, English-speaking people are on the bus and see if I can borrow their literature. Right. Fellow travelers are a fantastic source of information. The word-of-mouth network can give you so much critical information about places you may be going on to, and, and in return, you can give people information about where you've just come from. And if I'm in the middle of nowhere in a developing country, and I just wish I had a map or a little bit of English information, there's not going to be an English bookstore, I'll go to the one fancy hotel. It'll have a little gift shop, and if there is some kind of a guidebook, a Lonely Planet or whatever, it'll be on sale in that fancy hotel's bookshop. Mm-hmm. One thing I do when I'm in a town and if I don't have any information and I want to be sure I know what there is to see is I simply look at the postcard rack. Yeah. Spin the postcard rack, whatever looks good, ask the guy, where's this, and head on out. Mm-hmm. Anne in Tacoma emails us and asks about dealing with beggars and aggressive children in the developing world. Uh, that is just overwhelming sometimes, isn't it, Don, when you're in a, in a developing country? That's an ongoing problem, and I think really everyone has to come up with their own solution to that problem. Uh, some people I know carry a small amount of money and they just give it out to every single beggar that they meet. Other people resolutely do not give any money out to beggars at all, but instead choose to give money to some local charity, some organization that they feel more confident will actually aid the people it's meant to aid. So I think it's a really tough problem that everyone has to deal with in their own way. Because in a lot of ways, when a rich Western tourist gives money to some grubby little kid on the street, you're just training him to run after every rich Western tourist. I remember going through uh, villages in Egypt uh, 50 miles an hour in a minibus, and kids knew there was tourists in the minibus, and they were coming running at us from all sides, and you can hear them screaming, backsheesh, backsheesh. Mm-hmm. And it was a pathetic situation. They had been trained by uh, other tourists that pat him on the head, and here's a little backsheesh. Right, Exactly. 
for me, I try to give to local on-the-ground charities and organizations that I know are doing a good job and that I know don't have a large overhead or administrative staff that's going to take all the money. I think that's, for me, the most responsible way to do it. To me, it's sort of an ethical way to travel when you realize the horrendous gap between the wealthy and the poor world. Half of humanity is trying to live on $2 a day. I mean, I'm literally half of humanity. Yeah. One-fifth of humanity has no access to good drinking water. My daughter's got $5,000 for braces. $5,000 would drill a well in a thirsty town, and then all the moms in that town wouldn't have to spend hours every day walking for water. Right. These are serious issues, and when you travel, I think you deal with that. And while you uh, like to patronize small mom-and-pop outfits in the developing world where you know the money will stay there, I also keep track of how my heart has been tugged on, and then I go home and I try to function knowing I'm a citizen of a very wealthy, powerful nation in a way that I vote for uh, what's good for the world, what's good for the developing world. And I'm very excited to promote the work of Bread for the World in Washington, D.C., which lobbies our government to be sensitive to the needs of the developing world. One thing I found is when you're just in a temple or in some uh, souk in Morocco, all these kids are coming at you, and they want to be your guide. And it's annoying. And I find it's worth finding the most easy-to-enjoy little kid and just hiring him just because once you're taken by one of the kids, nobody else is going to be pestering you to be a guide. It's sort of an unwritten rule that when one guide's all that each tourist gets. Right. Be proactive. And if you have a local contact, ask that person to set you up with somebody there so that at least you have a, a, a certain trust factor there. I've found that even if you don't want a guide, it's worth three or four dollars just to have a kid uh, with you that'll keep the other kids away. Another thing, when I go to the sites in Egypt, I find that everybody wants to be your guide. And if I just hold up my guidebook and I say, I have a guide, then they kind of get the message. And that's helpful. Hmm. Margaret from Tampa emails us. Uh, she says, it, it took me a while to get used to India. And when I came home, I had culture shock in reverse. <laughs> any, any tips to deal with this? Isn't that the truth? I have to be retrained when I get home. Absolutely. Culture shock in reverse is big. I remember coming back after living in Asia and standing in a United States supermarket in the cereal section, and there were about 50 or 60 kinds of cereal. And I just thought, I don't know what, how to deal with this. I, I had just come from a place where if you were lucky if there were cornflakes. It is stunning. You just have to, I think, literally disengage for about a week and take it really slow and just kind of gradually, step by step, immerse yourself back into our local culture. And think about ways that we can incorporate slices of other ways of living and cultures into our way of living at home and we become sort of cultural hybrids. Right, right. You become world citizens when you travel and absorb the great things that you find in other cultures, whether it's philosophy or clothing or a new approach to spirituality. Whatever it is that you find in a place, if you can bring that back with you, plant those seeds in your native soil, see what wonderful blossoms sprout in your own life. That is a really fantastic gift of travel. That's the best souvenir. That is the best souvenir. Don, Don George from Lonely Planet. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. It's been a great pleasure. And just a reminder that Don's new blog, with links to his other online adventures, is at geox.travel. That's G-E-O-E-X travel. Imagine cruising up the Amazon River. Gary Chandler writes the Amazon chapter to Lonely Planet's Brazil guidebook. He joins us next from a research assignment in the Caribbean for a taste of what awaits anyone venturing up the Amazon, from the busy port of Manaus, through the jungles, all the way to Peru. It's the mysteries and surprises of the Amazon, up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to take you down the Amazon, and I don't want to go down the Amazon without some expert advice. So we have with us the man who wrote the Amazon chapter of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Brazil, Gary Chandler. He, Gary's on the line uh, by telephone from Mexico. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Gary, uh, when people think about the Amazon, it's huge. Uh, your book says it's 12 times the flow of the Mississippi, like 17% of all the world's fresh water. That's right. The Mississippi has a mere billion liters of water per minute at its mouth. Uh, the Amazon has 12 billion. Wow. Ocean-going vessels can sail like 2,000 miles inland? All the way to Peru. <laughs> it's a huge area. Uh, how do you choose? You know, Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. Give me a, just a quick primer. If you want to experience the Amazon, what's your best way to spend a vacation there? Uh, well, it's worth deciding what exactly you want, you know, and kind of how... Do you want to see lots of animals, and how much are you able to uh, rough it, so to speak? Um, but as a general piece of advice, I would say people fly into Manaus, which is the main city, um, and then get immediately out of Manaus. Um, fly up to a place, for example, called Tefe, where there's a beautiful reserve called Mamirawa. And you can take a three-day or four-day trip, and you stay in floating cabanas, and they're pretty comfortable, and you take boat trips through the forest, and, and it's beautiful. And, and you get to uh, beyond the, the kind of the tourist crunch that you'll find in, in Manaus. So you're making a home base, and then you're side-tripping from that home base into the jungle and up and down the river. Is that the idea? Um, so to speak. I, a lot of people get caught in Manaus. It's like you fly into Manaus because that's where all the flights arrive, and there are tons of boat trips that you can do from Manaus. But, you know, this is a city of over a million people, and this is a major industrial uh, corridor. You know, you've got major ships going up and down. So it's un unlikely that you're going to see very many creatures in that right. environment. It's much better to skip right over that and go to one of the smaller towns up or down river. Okay. What about taking a riverboat ride? I understand uh, the local people get around by riverboat several days at a time on the boat. That's right. It's, uh, it is an experience unto itself. <laughs> These are big boats, you know, they can hold uh, a couple hundred people on them, and you show up a couple hours early and set up your hammock. You know, there's no, a few of them have cabins, but most people, you know, you have your hammock and you string it up, and it's a long, you know, these are long distances that you're talking about, so you could be on the boat for two, three, five days. And this is how the communities, uh, I would imagine in the jungle, it's easier to go up and down by river than by road. That's right. I mean, there are almost literally no roads. Um, there are a few uh, highways between Manaus and going north into Venezuela and a few roads here and there, but it's by boat or by plane are, are really your only option. Okay, so you've got hundreds of people stacked onto one of these. Um, I, I imagine there's several floors on the boat, and there's, there's no luxury class, and people are stringing up their hammocks. It sounds like it could be a nightmare or it could be a fantasy. Uh, paint a picture of how miserable it could be, and then we'll talk about how good it could be. <laughs> how miserable it could be. Well... You've got hundreds of people and probably, if you're lucky, four toilets. So I think that says it right there. You're dealing with buffet-style meals, so anybody who's eaten one of those, somebody's liable to get sick, and it doesn't take too many people to make the, the bathrooms just intolerable. And so that is a and, – and you're stuck. You know, you're on the boat all the time <laughs> chugging up river. You know, if you're not comfortable living, you know, sleeping in a hammock, that's obviously a, uh, some difficulty. Certain areas are better than others. If you're stuck kind of by the engine, you might get a lot of engine noise or fumes. There's probably no seasickness, but there's food sickness and crowded conditions. Sure. And, but, you know, it really depends on your perspective. For a lot of Brazilians, that's heaven on earth. You know, it's like it's, there's a party all day and most of the night. So climb up, on, the climb up onto the rooftop and tell us about one of these parties. That's right. Well, I mean, it's just an open-air boat on top, you know, and, and that's where they'll have a, a small bar or small food stand, and they'll sell water and drinks and food and things like that. And they'll have huge speakers, and they're playing uh, all sorts of terrific music, and everyone's dancing and having fun and drinking and talking, and it's, it's great. I think for most travelers, it gets a little old after two or three days. Yeah. <laughs> so they do sell a few, and the nicer ones they sell it sell a few uh, what they call cabins, and they're actual private rooms with a bed and in some cases even air conditioning. But they're almost invariably on the top floor, so you've got the pounding noise <laughs> all the time. Most people actually end up preferring the hammock. What kind of music would you hear? You know, Brazil.
Brazilian music, salsa, uh, bossa nova. You hear MPB, which is translates roughly to popular Brazilian music. <laughs> it's in the initials for the Portuguese. Uh, and this, I mean, this is that. the this is the land of carnival, right? So, are the sure. So I mean, gonna... it's a party. It's wonderful. I mean, it, you know, it's Brazil and Brazilians are great for their uh, spirit and, and sense of openness, and it, you don't have to worry about being a foreigner and being ill-received. I mean, that, that sort of thing is just really foreign in Brazil, right. in my experience and most people's experience. When you're traveling, uh, just a basic decision you've got to make when you're choosing your accommodations is bed or hammock. Is that right? Yes, to a degree. I mean, it, 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 again, it depends on what sort of trip you like. I mean, there are a lot of small, medium, even large towns along the Amazon, even far upriver. So in many cases, you're flying or boating into a town, and you stay at a hotel. And just like any town, they've got different levels of hotels, so from budget to top end. And then from there, you might take a boat trip. And if the boat trip is several days, you might end up sleeping on a hammock or, or in, a, in a jungle lodge kind of thing. But it's not like you're out there in the outback all the time. But tell me a little bit about hammocks. I, I find that kind of a romantic thing. I've never slept in a hammock. Can you sleep well in a hammock? You can. You know, many millions of people do. So uh, it is possible. I mean, can you? Can I? <laughs> I do. The thing that most people don't know about hammocks is that you have to sleep sideways. You know, if you sleep from end to end, of course, your back is curved from the, you know, from where it's the, the shape of the hammock. But if you think of yourself turning 90 degrees, you're in what would be the trough of the hammock, and so your back is perfectly flat. And it takes a little getting used to. You have to kind of tug the hammock this way and that so your head is supported well. And most people end up doing it kind of on a 45-degree angle. But the trick is to turn as, as much to 90 degrees as possible to get a flat surface for you to sleep on. Okay. Can you make then, love in a hammock? I'm, making love in a hammock. You know, you can buy in Brazil what they call matrimonial hammocks, and they're humongous. Um, I have not had the uh, privilege of making love <laughs> in a hammock. The pleasure of the privilege. <laughs> But My I mean, wife do people come make with me on this trip? So, do do um, people make love in hammocks? Well, there's a lot of people who were born in the Amazon, and that's all they sleep on. So I, I think that's the case. They sleep in a hammock to keep them off the ground. Is that right? And it's cooler. It's cooler. It's easier. You know, if you're in a one-room hut, which yeah. a lot of people upriver are are living in, you can't take up you know half your space with a bed. A hammock, you know, hangs up on the wall, and then at night, you just everyone it pulls out. out their hammock, and and it's a much more efficient use. Of okay, but do couples in a very poor hut, do they have a hammock for two or do they have two singles? Um, I think it depends on the couple. I think there are hammocks for two. They're more expensive, you know, so in some cases they'll sleep in individual ones. But I think you really see both. I don't think there's a rule per se, but um, okay, so it is not doable. that one is rare. Okay, it is doable. And the key, if you're sleeping alone in a hammock, is to sleep at an angle to find that trough. Tell me about insects and mosquitoes and so on. What's the biggest challenge for your health when you're traveling the Amazon? Well, just, you know, the Amazon does have malaria. It does have other insect-borne diseases. So um, to the degree that you can take pills, anti-malarials is a good idea. Ironically, the Brazilian medical establishment doesn't believe in anti-malarials. They aren't 100% effective, and they do have some side effects. Well, don't they just mask the symptoms and you still get the disease? Yeah, I mean, it's... Basically, you take the same medicine you would take if you got sick. So to some people, it makes more sense to wait and see if you actually do get sick and then take the medicine. Why? What's the, what's the downside of taking the medicine? Well, some antimalarials can be quite powerful. Um, chloroquine, which is a common one, tends to not have many side effects. Neither does doxycycline. The ones you've got to worry about are the, the quinines, especially uh, mefloquine is the one. It's sold as larium is the brand name. And it can, it's, you know, it can cause hallucinations. It can cause um, some very severe neurological reactions. I've taken it and had no problem whatsoever. Do you have to be pretty savvy if you, if you need to get medicine in Brazil, or do you go to a pharmacy and they will treat you as a first-world traveler who's sick would want to be treated? Well, I, you know, having traveled to Brazil and other places with malaria, I, I think it makes sense to do some research online ahead of time. Like go to the CDC website. You can plug in the country that you're going to, and they'll give you exactly the, the medicine that they recommend because not all medicines are effective in every region. Which website was that? 
the Centers for Disease Control. That, that's, that's very good advice. You know, one of the fascinating things to me would be the opportunity to not only go up the river, but to side trip into the jungle. Now, I imagine there's a lot of small towns that have a fair amount of tourism, and if it's like traveling in other parts of the tropics, you can just team up with somebody who's good at, uh, you know, a small-time operator. He'll take you into the, into the jungle or into the bush. Talk a little bit about your options there. Sure. Um, the first thing to say is you should really not go into the jungle under any circumstances by yourself or with your buddy and just decide to go camping somewhere. There's just story after story of people who do that and, you know, in worst case, die and are never found. In, in other cases, have to be rescued. And it's a really serious thing. I mean, the, the rainforest is nothing to mess around so with. So who kills them, animals or people? Um, usually just from exposure. You know, the rainforest, for all its rain, is actually a hard place to get fresh water sometimes. So you can die of, of uh, dehydration. So you just get so, swallowed up in the immensity of that uh, right. Russian <laughs> wild place. Are there drug runners, uh, gangs, you know, violence that's lurking in, in the jungle? Sure. Uh, but, you know, it's very unlikely that tourists are, are going to encounter any of that on a, on a typical tour. You know, those sort of things happen deep inside the forest, and so you'd have expeditions of a week or more to, to even get close to that stuff. I would think, for, in general, I think the security issues are not as severe as people might think, as long as you're smart. You, you stick with a tour operator, you do a little bit of research, and don't do anything stupid. You know? well, that's good um, to know, because in, in a lot of uh, the developing world, not a lot, but in certain corners, uh, it's a real problem. In Papua New Guinea, they've got what they call rascals that actually hijack entire tourist buses, and they don't kill them, but they take all their, their belongings from them. And you don't find that desperate people in the jungle see tourists as rich sitting ducks and, and just... Uh, I've, you know, I've, never, I've never personally encountered that. I've never heard stories like that. I think your, your greater risk is, you know, getting pickpocketed at the airport in Manaus. You that's, know? <laughs> that's good. All right. That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you're going into the Amazon, you know, you've got these images of exotic wildlife, jaguars, anacondas, piranha. Uh, what are you likely to encounter? Uh, well, it's a good question because a lot of people, I think, would go to the Amazon and, and somehow or another come out disappointed, you know, and it seems sad to have spent all that time and money and come out uh, with some some regrets, but the fact is you're not going to see, like you said, jaguars and anacondas in every tree and, you know, unacculturated indigenous tribes uh, around the corner. The things you are likely to see are river dolphins, pink and gray river dolphins, which are really interesting, uh, monkeys, sloths, crocodiles, piranha, and, and the river itself, which is just fascinating. I mean, it's such an enormous natural phenomenon. It's, it's worth just uh, taking in hmm. the river in and of itself. Are the piranhas as uh, hungry as their image? They are. Um, <laughs> not all of them are capable of, you know, not all piranhas are all that big. Uh, most piranhas are pretty small. The trick with piranhas is not so much the piranhas itself, or, is, but the season. In the, in the low water season, the fish are concentrated in the channels of the river, and there's much less food, and so they're more likely to bite your finger if they, if they can. In the high water season, the fish spread out much more, so there's smaller schools, they, they are into the flooded areas of the forest, and so the same with crocodiles, you know, and so in the high water season, you might be able to swim in certain areas, in the low water season, it's not a good idea. Huh. We have an email from uh, Kate in Seattle, and she said she lived in Brazil and uh, speaks Portuguese, so she was able to make a lot of friends. What's the language barrier situation like? Is Portuguese the uh, standard language across the country? Yes, it is. It's um, absolutely... Even in the bush or in the jungles, you'll find people speaking Portuguese or in native languages? Um, there are, obviously, there are some native languages that are still uh, spoken there, but just like you know, traveling in other indigenous regions in Central and South America... The national language is the one to go with, and, and in this case... It's so a little Portuguese, Portuguese will help, and uh, what about English? Is that widely understood, or pretty much just... Uh, with well, you know, just like, you know, tourism is, you know, to the degree that any place that has a certain flow of tourism, English is, you can get by. Uh, and Spanish, you know, is, it's, Portuguese and Spanish sound very differently, but if you speak Spanish, you will discover that you mm. understand and can even speak much more Portuguese than you might have expected. I'm talking with Gary Chandler, uh, and Gary writes the uh, chapter on the Amazon in the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Brazil. Gary, I was uh, reading about canoeing through the jungle canals, and that sounds just so interesting. Tell me more about uh, that experience. What's with the canals in the jungle? Sure. Well, the 
the main issue is this, that the river is so big that, you know, it's miles across in certain places, the main channel. You're much more likely to kind of get that in-the-jungle, winding river experience if you take one of the, the side rivers, you know, the, the tributaries. And those are called Igarapé in Portuguese, and it's basically a river channel. In the high water season, when the river is flooded, the water floods out of the channels and into the forest. And so the forest is called, um, depending on you know, depending on whether what kind of river it is, whether it's a black or a white river, the flooded forest is also a place where you can go boating. And and that is even more fascinating because there's no channel at all. You're just kind of making your way through the forest. You're boating uh, through the forest. Right. During a flood. Right. Well, you know, the river, as big as the river as the Amazon is, it varies between 10 and 14 meters in water depth from low water to high water. So, you know, the main channel floods completely, and the entire basin is just flooded with water. And is that a seasonal thing or a storm thing? It's a seasonal thing, thing, yeah. So there's a flood season that people anticipate this, and it just, it's probably um, the Nile flooded too, and it just uh, nourishes the land. Is it part of the whole echo uh, tempo of life? Absolutely. I mean, it's absolutely essential to the entire ecosystem. And it, what's interesting, it's such a big river. You know, the flood slowly moves downriver. You know, it, huh. the high water season occurs earlier upriver than it does downriver. You said there's a white river and a black river. What, what's the difference? Sure. A white river is not really white. It's more like a creamy brown. And it's filled with sediment, basically. It's coming down from what is geologically young part of uh, the Andes. And so it's carrying a lot of sediment. It carries a lot of organic material, nutrients. And so around the White River areas, it tends to be thicker vegetation, more animals, but also more mosquitoes. The Black River is not so much a Black River as it is like a dark reddish brown, but it's transparent. It's not carrying much sediment. It tends to run slower, so the organic material has a chance to um, decompose and it releases organic acids, which tends to kill insect larvae. So in Black River areas, you have fewer mosquitoes. Um, But because it's less organically rich, you tend to have a little fewer vegetation and animals. So the choice of river really shapes the sort of sightseeing you'll be able to enjoy. Yes and no. Those are things to consider. But, you know, as as this is something we write in the book, luck is the number one thing. You know, Mm -hmm. you could go to Black River until you're blue in the face and not see a single animal and then go to a White River and and see tons of them. It really has to do with luck, and and that goes back to expectations. Just let the river and the experience be what it is. And if you see animals, that's terrific. If you don't, you still saw an amazing rainforest. You saw uh, an amazing river. And it's an extremely important part of the world that you've, that you've just explored. We'll finish our exploration of the Amazon with Gary Chandler in a moment. And then we're jetting over to New Zealand, where Errol Hunt clues us in on its indigenous Maori culture. That's where sticking out your tongue is a polite way to say hi. Don't forget that we have message boards on our website where you can share your comments and see what others have to say about what they hear on this show. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Thanks for coming along. We're traveling off the beaten track today on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Gary Chandler, uh, and Gary writes the uh, chapter on the Amazon in the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Brazil, and that's a huge book, and the Amazon is like a book within the book. Now, it's a massive river. As we mentioned, ocean-going vessels can sail inland 2,000 miles from the Atlantic uh, up the Amazon River. You can also uh, side trip into the Amazon from Peru. Tell me just a little bit about coming in from Peru to experience the Amazon. Well, this is along the same lines of how to have a good experience. The further upriver you are or the further down one of the tributaries you are, the smaller the river is relatively and the more likely you are to see more animals and the things, you know, down by the mouth of the river, it's, the deforestation is much more severe, the population is much higher. So it makes perfect sense that the further upriver you go or the further down a tributary you go, you're likely to have the sort of experience that most people are looking for when they come to the Amazon. So a lot of people start in Peru. You can also do great trips in Colombia or, uh, you know, even in starting from Bolivia hmm. into the Amazon. So if you're going to do that, I imagine Machu Picchu is one of the most visited sites in South America. Can you tie in a, a Amazon experience with your Machu Picchu experience in Peru? Sure, absolutely. You have to work out the transportation in Peru. But, um, yeah, there are plenty of trips that start in Peru. 
on their way down the Amazon. And then you get the more intimate, uh, smaller Amazon experience. That's right. It's still a big river. Right. I mean, it's not a creek you're talking about. <laughs> it's still a very big river. I'm talking with Gary Chandler, and Gary writes the Amazon chapter of the Lonely Planet Guide to Brazil. Let's finish off with just one evocative kind of moment. Gary, if you came home with a journal from your Amazon experience and you had one photograph to feature on the cover, one magical experience, what would it be? Um, I've got a photo that I took from a trip in a, in a reserve uh, somewhat deep in the Amazon. And you, you just see trees, leaves, and it's all green. And, but if you keep looking, you'll see the little face of a sloth peering out. And as you look at the picture, you actually realize you can actually see most of the sloth. And I took the shot during this boat trip. I was sitting in a little canoe, and, and a local guide was pointing the sloth out to me, and I couldn't see him, couldn't see him. And finally I saw him. He was just peering back at us and uh, just snapped the shot. And, and to me, that's really quintessential Amazon. You're just floating along. It's an amazing rainforest and, and river. And every once in a while, you, you see something in the trees that you didn't see before. You know, you looked in the same spot, and then suddenly you look harder, and, and there is a monkey or a sloth or, or a snake. And it's just a fascinating place and, and full of those little discoveries. Wow. Experience the Amazon with all your senses. Gary Chandler, author of the Amazon chapter of the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Brazil, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for having me on. É pão, é pedra, é o fim do caminho É o resto de toco, é um pouco sozinho Now for a change of scenery. Let's zip halfway around the southern hemisphere and meet the Maori people of New Zealand. They're the southernmost Polynesian culture and indigenous to the islands we call New Zealand. Errol Hunt, who also writes for Lonely Planet, joins us now with a proper introduction to his own Maori culture. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I want to talk about the Maori population of New Zealand. And joining us is Errol Hunt, who is a Kiwi. Errol writes a guidebook for Lonely Planet about New Zealand. Errol, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Rick. I called you a Kiwi. Uh, did that insult you? No, not at all. Kiwi's a completely acceptable nickname for a New Zealander. All right. Now, I understand you are part Maori. Is that right? What is your ethnic background? Uh, yeah, that's right. My background's mostly Scottish and Maori on my father's side, which is the Ngāpui tribe in the North, the North Island. Now, when we think about New Zealand, of course, you got the European population and what a, a, a sizable minority is actually the ethnic Maori people. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's um, about 15% of the population is Maori, I think. Now, is, is the Maori language still alive and uh, sort of a formal language? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's one of the official languages in New Zealand. So you see it written everywhere. It's, you know, it's on government forms and it's on you know, street signs and stuff like that. But also in, in areas where there's a very high Maori population, like Northland or East Coast, then you'll hear it spoken in, um, just in shops or in pubs or wherever. Really? Are there actually people that speak Maori and not English? Uh, no, no, everybody speaks English. Okay. Uh, but, but people do speak Maori as their first language when they're talking to each other? Yeah. In some homes, it's, um, Maori would be the, the language of choice. Now, as a tourist, if I want to experience the Maori culture... You know, the, the the problem we fall into is the sort of Kodak hula show in Hawaii for Polynesia or something like this. And sometimes that's the only way you get to see uh, hula skirts in action. Uh, yep. If I want to go to New Zealand and, and actually have a look or a taste of Maori culture, am I limited to cheesy tourist traps or, or what, what is your advice? No, definitely not. It's actually, there's been um, fantastic evolution in Maori tourism in New Zealand where now it's it's a lot more casual and devolved and most of what we call Maori tourism operators are actually that's not their main thing that's not their main shtick you know I'm a Maori and I'm doing tourism they'll they'll actually be a guide or they'll do kayak tours or something like that and at the same time they'll be telling you about their culture and telling you about their family and you know pointing out on that hill there was a fort and you know my ancestors were there and blah, 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 which is, is fantastic because it's it's a lot more personal and it kind of suits the Maori culture anyway, that kind of being a guide and, you know, being a host. So as a traveler, you want to line up a Maori guide? Is that the idea? Uh, no, these are just sort of small one-off operators. So, you know, you might go there. I did a, a kayak tour on the Whanganui River where we, we went to a marae, which is like a Maori 
cultural centre. Um, we were welcomed onto the marae and, you know, had the whole hospitality thing, which is very important to Māori culture. And then they told us a bit of their history, and then we went and got in the canoes and went down the river. And so the main thing was like a two-hour trip on the river, having a look at the scenery and stuff like that. But um, added to that was, was this whole sort of aspect of Māori culture and connecting with the Māori people and seeing their marae and stuff like that. Now, the marae is the meeting house, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Tell me about this this meeting house. That sounds like the cultural centre of the community. Yeah, they're, they're pretty pretty common. Um, I'm thinking the town I grew up in, Foxhaney, we had about five or six marais, just for sort of small sub-tribes in the town. And they just work as a cultural centre. The meeting house itself is the, the one you see in books. It's got all these massive carvings and stuff and artworks inside, and that's where all the, the speeches and business go on. But on a marae complex, there'll also be a, um, a whare kai, which is a big eating hall, and a few other buildings. And, you know, they're used for funerals or any kind of community event. Schools will often stay mm-hmm. at marae's when they go on a school trip. Now, in Ireland, the government actually uh, subsidizes the uh, Gaelic lifestyles. They have places called Gaeltex, which are like national parks for the traditional culture. Uh, right. Does the New Zealand government uh, have the same approach to traditional Maori culture? Yeah, there's definitely there's a lot of support for Maori culture and making sure that it's alive and vibrant. And that's probably something that's changed in the last 20 years. There's been more and more support for that sort of thing. In the United States, there's kind of a dark side of the relationships between uh, the American Indian cultures and then the white culture. Is is there a challenge or a sore spot that uh, you can explain about the Maori relations with the mainstream New Zealand culture? Um, yeah, there's probably. I mean, New Zealand's, you know, it's not any kind of wonderland. There's race issues in New Zealand like anywhere else. There's definitely grievances from the past which are um, still raising their heads. In the, the 1840s and 1860s there was a series of wars in New Zealand in the North Island and there was a, a lot of land that was confiscated from the Māori after those wars by the government. The confiscations, you know, when you look at them now, they're, they're pretty dodgy. And so a lot of that land has been acknowledged by the government as wrongfully confiscated and they've tried to give some of it back but some can't be given back because it's in private hands now. Uh, so the, there's been a lot of, in the, the last 20 years, more, more probably since the wars, there's been all sorts of grievances about, you know, mm. is that fair compensation for the land you took and stuff like that. Are there actually tribal lands? Like in the United States, there's reservations? and uh, you know, Yeah, there's some a number of really big areas that are still owned by the tribe, so owned by a group of people, which is a pretty interesting kind of legal challenge. Like, you know, who gets to make decisions about this land? And... All that land is, is administered through the marae, so that's where people will go and discuss what they're going to do with the land. Are we going to use this for farming? Are we going to do something with tourism or whatever? Now, the Maori are part of a Pacific culture with, with many different ethnic groups that are all Polynesian, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. Maoris are, are part of Polynesia. Yeah, New Zealand Maori are very similar to Cook Islands Maori. I went to the Cook Islands a few years ago and I actually found I could speak the local language, which was fantastic and great wow. surprise. And then... There's there's not much of a difference between that and between Tahitian and Hawaiian, which is pretty amazing because there's thousands of kilometres between those island groups, but there just used to be so much travel back and forwards between the islands that the languages are still really similar. That's something that unfolds to you when you travel through that region, I bet, is the uh, differences and the similarities between the different South Pacific people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I understand that half of the ethnic South Pacific people live actually in New Zealand or something like that, uh, You know, nearly half of the people. Does that make New Zealand, in a sense, the capital of South Pacific? Yeah, well, Auckland's referred to sometimes as the, the capital of Polynesia. And um, Auckland and Wellington, which are both in the North Island, have got quite high Polynesian Pacific Island populations. And it's it's actually a great thing about those places. Like You can go and get into this Pacific culture quite easily. And it's uh, it's not something that's developed like Maori tourism so it's it's a it's a little bit you know you have to work for it you have to look in the local papers and see that there's going to be a Samoan cricket match on mm. and then go and find that in your map book and get yourself out there and you'll be the only traveler there which I think is a pretty fantastic wow. thing to do. Now I understand the Maori tribes actually have their own web domain. I think each tribe has got a, a website or oh, everyone's got a website haven't they? So NZ um, would be so New Zealand but IWI preceding that would be a Maori that's tribe. Iwi. Iwi is um, the Māori word for a tribe. So, um, like, my tribe, Ngāpui, is um, ngāpui.iwi.nz. 
Huh. And yeah, they've been a fantastic way to get all that information out to, to various tribal members who are anywhere in New Zealand. I was reading about Maori fusion cuisine. What on earth does that mean? This, uh, yeah, a lot of cooking that traditional Maori cooking, like in a hangi or seafood or Maori bread, that's now finding its way into quite flash restaurants and some of the herbs and vegetables and stuff as well. Kumara, which is a sweet potato. I love kumara. I can't find kumara in, in Australia. It's terrible. Um, it's uh, yeah, really commonly used in um, good cooking these days. All right. So there's just a little bit of a resurgence of Maori culture adapting to the modern world. They've got a website. Their cuisine's melting into the other cuisines. It's a jumping-off point for exploring uh, related tribes across the South Pacific. Uh, are there any faux pas that travelers should be mindful of when they're uh, venturing into Maori communities and so on? Or any sensitivities? Um, if you go onto a, a marae, there's a, an enormous number of rules that you have to follow very strictly. But the thing is, if a Māori goes onto a marae and breaks those rules, you know, they'll be frowned upon. And if a white New Zealander went on and broke the rules, they'll be taken aside and probably politely told what the rules are. If a traveller breaks the rules, they'll just giggle and go, yeah. <laughs> say, oh, you, you idiot. And this is these Maori media <laughs> Now let also. me tell you what you were supposed to do. Okay. I mean, that's, the, yeah, that's probably not quite true, but there's no way, you know, they're, they're not made of glass. They're not going to crumble if you break a rule. Errol, is there a traditional Maori greeting? Uh, yeah, the, the formal greeting is a, a hongi, which is um, when you touch noses with, with another person. If you go to a marae, then it's, that's part of the... You actually rub noses. Yeah, or you don't, you don't actually rub them. You just um, touch... So just press, yeah. Isn't that, like, we call it Eskimo kisses? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the Eskimo kiss is kind of a side-to-side rub. And yeah. um, there are Americans who come to New Zealand and, and do that, the side-to-side rub. Oh, that's um, Eskimo, but, not Maori. Get your, yeah, get that's your right. ethnic yeah. uh, greetings. And there was, um, very amusingly, there was a, a Prime Minister of Australia who had some big burly Maori chap come up and give him a hungi, and, and this guy, the Prime Minister, kissed him on the nose, which is... <laughs> That, kiss them on the nose. Yeah, we were talking about faux pas. That's it's a pretty bad faux pas. Nose to nose. Don't kiss the nose of your Maori <laughs> that's, friends. That's right. I'm talking with Errol Hunt, who writes the Lonely Planet Guide to New Zealand. And Errol, tell me about these blue tattoos that you always uh, associate with the Maoris. Well, the traditional pre-European Maori who had tattoos was part of their culture. And it was something that was added to during your life. Men were tattooed all over their face and on their thighs. Women were tattooed just on their chin and often on their thighs. The way that they tattooed in, in New Zealand was <laughs> pretty painful mm. with a little kind of a chisel. It died out after Europeans came to New Zealand, but there's been a, a renaissance now. It's unusual, but it's not at all completely unusual to see men with the full facial tattoo, moko it's called. Is that right? 21st century Maoris with a full facial uh, blue tattoo? Yeah, yeah. And it's a real display of pride in their culture. And um, women as well on the East Coast, when I was there a couple of years ago, I saw a few women who had just a little tattoo on their chin, which is where women get their facial moko. And yeah, again, it's, it's a real pride thing. Boy, talk about a souvenir that'll stick with you. Yeah, that's right. Have yeah. you ever met a tourist that got a, a Maori tattoo? A lot of tourists get, um, not, not on the face, but, you know, on their arms or whatever, like a tribal pattern. Um, that's pretty common. And I think some of them kind of angst about it, you know, this is culturally okay. But really, I think New Zealanders and Maoris love the fact that people are into their culture that much. So nobody's yeah. really too concerned about foreigners getting it. I'm talking with Errol Hunt, who writes the Lonely Planet Guide to uh, New Zealand. Errol, I'm impressed that the Maori language is still alive and well, and I would imagine as a traveler, it'd be good to know a few words. Give me a quick language lesson here in, in a couple of Maori words I should know. Okay. Um, kia ora is, is the most useful one. Kia ora sort of means hello, goodbye, like aloha. thank you, aloha. So yeah, the same as aloha. Kia ora? It sort of all runs together. It's kia ora. Kia ora. It's spelled K-I-A-O-R-A, but you kind of run it all together. Kia ora, okay. And kia ora is said by white New Zealanders as well as, as Māoris. So it's that's just very, the general chow, the greeting, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what if I'm in a bar and I'm having a drink and I want to go, cheers, toast, cheers to your health? Uh, kia ora, yeah. Kia ora. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very useful word. Kia ora would be, yeah, appropriate for cheers as well. Kia ora. Boy, that's the all-around word for Māori culture. Yep, yep. All right, Errol Hunt, author of The New Zealand Guide by Lonely Planet. Kia ora. <laughs> Kia ora, Rick.
Here at Travel with Rick Steves, we think of our listeners as travel partners and offer lots of ways to participate. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has message boards for you to continue today's discussion online. And if you're feeling creative, send us a poem. Here's some original haiku we thought you'd enjoy from some of our traveling listeners. Ginny Reed of Florence, Oregon, writes us this haiku from a patio in Italy's Cinque Terre region. Perched on weathered cliffs, sunshine sparkles on blue sea, sweet for Natsa nest. Chris Zimmerly of Dallas, Texas, sends us this seasonal haiku. Time to harvest now, deep earth cornucopia, fuel for traveling. And Bobby Trist lives in Champaign, Illinois, but spent six years in Western Germany in the 1970s. She writes us these haiku about two of her discoveries in Europe. World Techno Wonder. From Rotterdam to Warsaw. Mitteland Canal. And Rick Steves missed this one. Wonder of the Modern World, Minden, Germany. Again, we'd like to receive a haiku from you about your travels or send us a short brag about your hometown. Look for details from our 15 Seconds of Fame link. It's in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section of our website. That's where you can look up information on today's program and listen to audio archives and extra features. You can also use our website to send your questions and comments for Rick to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves and to post your thoughts on today's program. Details are in the radio pages at ricksteves.com. The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communications support from Robin Stencil, Rachel Unk, and Sonia Grosset, and technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to ABC Radio in Melbourne, Australia, for engineering help today. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.